I'm Jason Sylvia, and this is The Creative Capital Show. A show about creative people and how those creative people turn into entrepreneurs by taking their creativity and turning it into a business and facing all the trials and tribulations along the way. Vintage, grails, sneakers, fashion, streetwear. All these terms are related, yet uniquely diverse when it comes to clothing. Maybe they should all fall under the term collectible fashion, which to my knowledge was coined by this episode's guest, Sudi Belliard. Sudi is the owner and founder of Cured Collection, a store which has become a focal point in the Providence clothing scene. Cured provides more than just hard-to-find pieces. It provides a feeling of nostalgia, and more importantly, a sense of community. In this episode, I sit down with Sudi and talk about his first pop-up shops, what it was like to have a store in the oldest mall in America, how his older brother's desire to always look good impacted his perspective on clothing, gauging the needs of and educating your customer, his thoughts on clothing and trends, why he was happy to get fired from his day job, and his desire to design a piece of clothing himself. And it all started in grade school, when a young Sudi noticed his winter jacket was just a bit different than everyone else's. Enjoy. Sudi Belliard. That's it. How you doing, man? I'm doing all right. So with the, my first name right, because people constantly have like a problem with it. And I understand it's not phonetical, so it's like it makes perfect sense that people would have a problem with it. The easy way for people to remember how to pronounce it is like it's the name Rudy with an S sound in the front instead of an R sound. That, so, that's actually how I figured it out. Because I, re- I read an interview where it was like, Sudi, I'm like, oh, that's like that's an easy way yeah, to remember yeah. it. So um, for those that may be listening, I hope they're, it's outside the Rhode Island area. Hopefully yeah. I have that kind of reach. Yeah. But even if I don't. If somebody's in the Rhode Island or Providence area and for some reason has no idea who you are or what your company is or what you do, could you give maybe the elevator pitch of who you are and what you do before we uh, get in, get into the rest of the show? All right. I guess to make it brief, my name is Sudi Belliard. I uh, own a store called Cured Collection where we sell vintage streetwear and sneakers. I'm also uh, starting to create and design clothing for the store. Um, We've been around for five years now, and we've been in Providence Place Mall for three years. And uh, this is funny. So on other episodes, uh, shout out to Jabron, because Jabron, I think, was the first one to really call it out. I, I've gone into like a Nardwar mode where I'll find out some things. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to do that on this one, because I couldn't find out. Like, I know more about the store, but like you as a person, I couldn't yeah. find much. And I want to get into that in, in a okay. bit, because I find that interesting. Um, but, you know... Really, just like let's go all the way back to the beginning. Um, what you know for for everybody, whether you know, depending on the generation, depending on how you grew up, depending on if you grew up with the internet from when you were a kid or not. I think everybody gets into fashion and clothing for different reasons. What was your first exposure, or what got you into fashion and clothing and gear and sneakers and all that good stuff? So I'm blessed because I have um, two older siblings. 
particularly my older brother. He's 10 years older than me. So he was able to live and uh, experience a lot of the cool cultural things um, like, you know, the genesis of hip hop and a lot of uh, product that was uh, adjacent to the, the culture, like, you know, certain sneakers and brands and stuff like that. As yeah, that's the alarm in my store. Sorry, guys. No, and uh, if you if you hear that, um, I'll try to edit it out. But also, it just makes the podcast real. This is uh, this is I, I'm I'm mobile. I'm I'm we're actually inside Cured Collection. We're going to talk about that in a bit as well. But we continue. Yeah. So, um, with him, there was a lot of you know firsts that were able that he was experiencing as they were happening. Like he had the first Jordan ones and. He was able to watch Jordan, you know, as he played. And that was kind of like the connection between, you know, the product and the influence of the product, you know, live. And Jordan is still kind of one of those things. Jordan's in general is still one of those things that have like a significant cultural uh, relevance. But the fact that, you know, he was like such a big fan of him and obviously, you know, Jordan's and stuff like that, that was like a big... um, a big influence in terms of, you know, just what that is, you know, just the sportswear and, and fashion and how those things kind of connect with the culture and stuff like that. So with uh, with that, I was able to get a lot of hand-me-downs because, you know, him being involved in a lot of that stuff and being interested in a lot of sneakers and clothes, you only got so much room for that stuff or some things you might not just be interested in anymore. And me being, I was like basically the same size that I am now when I was like 12. So he was able to give me some stuff that fit him or even that might have been too big for him because I was a pretty big kid. And uh, I was able to experience a lot of those things at an early age, I guess you can kind of say. So a couple of things there. One, it's interesting that that he, so you said he was two older brothers. No, I have an oh. older sister. And oh, an older, older sister and older yeah, brother. Yeah. Okay. My oldest sister, she's 14 years older than me. And then my brother is 10 years older than me. So your brother was the one who really had the, yeah. the influence. Um, it's interesting. Could you say that the things that we're experiencing in a retro sense now, like he was there for like when it was actually new? Like, exactly. like he was there when it was actually a new thing and, and the not thing like a retro that's, thing? Exactly. And the thing that's really cool about that is that you have to kind of decide then what was cool. You know what I mean? There, wasn't, yeah. there was no real identify. Obviously, there were certain cultural icons and things like that that you know, help define certain things, but... And maybe magazines and music yeah, videos and stuff like that. But sometimes you weren't even exposed to those things, so you had to kind of decide for yourself at that point, you know, what was cool, as opposed to now where things are kind of like pre-written by, you know, either the marketing of these brands, how big these brands are, who these brands are, like the celebrities that are tied to these brands and things like that. So it's almost like, like in the world of coding, there's like boilerplates. It's like, it's like boilerplate fashion almost like here, here's this boilerplate. Here's this template that you can start off with if you don't know anything and you can like go from there. Whereas before, like there was no template, right? Like it was all new. Exactly. And then you have to think about it. Like there's so many things that became like, um, you know, that we, we took or like appropriated that weren't of the culture that became like, you know, construction boots from Timberland and stuff like that clearly didn't, you know, or Polo Ralph Lauren. I mean, like that was, that, that that when that brand came out, that was not right. and what low heads did. And that's by the way, that's a whole we could spend three hours oh on God. that. But um, but I'm gonna try and keep it on track here. Hilariously, actually, uh, Ralph Lauren was definitely like a genesis for me in in regards to clothing 
textiles and 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 design because so I, I um growing up I went to like a Catholic school so we all wore uniforms and stuff right mm-hmm. and oh, I, I come from Catholic school I know I know the drill so like you know the only differentiating factor between like you and your classmates in terms of like how you look are like your face your body your shoes and like maybe your jacket or your sweater or something or, like, right? or if you wore a hat outside of class exactly you know. So, um, with my, again, being blessed with my brother, being able to give me certain hand-me-downs, I got this polo bubble coat from him, you know, polo sport, black, red on the inside. And everybody in my class had bubble coats. It was like everybody, it was just like, that was the thing that you wore in the wintertime, you know? But there was something that I could tell was different about the polo sport bubble coat that I had versus everybody else's in line when we were lining up to go out to like recess and stuff like that. So I would like touch mine and just feel like how soft and like interesting, like the fabric was versus like the bugle boy one that you know maybe my friend was wearing and i'm just like why is this different it's the same it looks the same you know yeah As like you're a, just like oh this is a jacket that is of like this puffiness this is another jacket of a puffiness yeah. but like this one this is something yeah something like, something completely different. different about this like this this my friend's joint feels super rigid and kind of like rough it's still warm but this feels like I'm wearing a comforter. You know what I mean? Like the one that I'm wearing. So, so would you I say like there that, was, that's your first realization of like, oh, there's different quality yeah. of clothing and there's, there's, there's this thing called luxury. Yeah. It wasn't even, I didn't even realize that it was like luxury. I just like, oh, this feels better. Yeah. You know what I mean? All right. There's something different. Or there. that there was even like a price difference. I wasn't cognizant of that. Cause like I'm saying, I'm getting these stuff, this stuff for free for my brother. We're not even going to the store to buy the stuff for like my family. And having the 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 debate of whether to buy this because it's a certain price or not, which constantly happened when I was growing up and having to shop with my parents, because my brother was buying this stuff with his own money. And that was going to be my next question: like, how how was was he buying it on his own, or was he yeah. having the argument with the parents? Like, no, 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 because you know, like I said, if I'm if I'm you know 10, 10 years old, he's twenty. You know what I mean? He's got a job. You know, he's relatively independent at that point, and he's buying the stuff that he really likes. He's going out to New York. He's you know, going to the polo stores out there or going to like the interesting kind of like low key spots that you back then you had to know everything like word of mouth type stuff. Yeah. You know? Um, so then with that, speaking about realization, actually, because there's, um, that brings up an interesting question that I want to ask you, which is, you know, we're talking about like those things that were retro then, like they're re-releasing now or like we're seeing again now and apologies to everybody if they keep hearing the beeping. Um, hey, it's, it's what happens when you record on location. Like yeah. weird things happen. There's a yeah. there's a ghost in the in the mall retail store. Um did you do you ever look back and or did you realize then the importance of those pieces? You know what I mean? Because like, I, I think like sometimes, you know, we don't like we can realize it now because of the internet and stuff like that, where it's just like everybody knows a type or whatever, but like right. did you realize then like Oh, these Jordan ones are going to be like a cultural. Like this polo coat, this specific one's going to be a cultural, like, no. like moment. You know, no, what I, I mean? mean, obviously, these things take time to kind of like for you to realize what's significant and what's not. Like the first time I put on a pair of Jordans versus like the whatever Reeboks that my that my parents bought me. Like there was, for instance, I have to give a lot of like praise to my brother because he would do stuff like my parents would buy me like whatever weird skippies to start the school year or whatever. And he'd be like, oh, yeah, I can't have you hanging out with me with these shoes on. So he would take them and bring them back to the store and then would pay the difference for like a better pair of shoes. You know what I mean? Gotcha. You know what I mean? So it would be like, I'd have like a nicer pair of Nikes or something like that versus whatever kind of trash Reeboks. And you know, those things were indicators to me. Like, why is this shoe better than this shoe? Why can't he hang out with me? Cause I'm wearing these shoes. Like, I doesn't make any, I don't, what is that? You know what I mean? So it started that curiosity, like those, in, yeah. those, those moments started the curiosity mm-hmm. like that. And like, 
you know, you have this coat that feels different than your buddy's coat. And it's like, why, like, why? So like that kind of started, like, I I guess like started your brain going like, oh, this is interesting. Right, right. But I didn't really think of anything in terms of like, I should hold on to this because it's going to be special in the future. Gotcha. That didn't really happen until I had a situation where, uh, you know, the internet started coming around and I started getting on websites that were showing me older shoes in like either special colorways or just older shoes that weren't around anymore and how people were going looking collecting these shoes that you know might have come out five or six years ago and like for my brother he had no real idea that that was a significant thing i was gonna say did he realize it because he was older okay so that's that's so i was showing him stuff in terms of like yo look the shit that you used to wear that you kind of don't give a fuck about anymore People are looking for that shit. Like, like he was just like, I wanted to wear this to look fly, yeah, yeah. like to look to like to look to look good. Especially, yeah, but it, it was like things of those moments as well. You know, gotcha. So they even like he didn't nostalgic. Realize. Yeah, they weren't like you know. A lot of times, for instance, look like at the vintage shit that we sell now. There's like a nostalgic element to it. It wasn't really that then. It was like that just happens to be culturally relevant now. You know, gotcha. Um, something I noticed when doing the research for this episode. So there is a Cure Collection playlist on YouTube. I don't know if it's still being updated or not, but right. I, I took a look at it okay. and it was pretty diverse, like in the terms of like the videos and the music in there oh, and everything. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, you know, so speaking of that, you know, I think that's a reflection of the store, but also you being, you being a pretty diverse guy when it comes to like the things I've seen you wear just out and about and mm. what you're into. Um, were you from a young age or like teens or whatever, always into like, different subcultures and things like that um or is that something that evolved over time like were you in like really into sports and then like you were getting into these other things were you really into music and then you got into these other things like how did this diverse taste kind of evolve i think it started with that polo coat man like it was a differentiating factor of like oh this is different you know um and as time went on i started to appreciate things that were less known and but still special Okay. You know, and as you start to kind of figure those things out, you start to go down more rabbit holes and more like uh, you find out more interesting things. So I think it was always I, I found I found it special to not take the easiest choice when it came to the things that I liked. Like if things are great and they're popular, that's amazing. You know, that means that they're like undeniable. But I feel like there's like something special in kind of digging for something that's just as good as the popular stuff, but might not just be as appreciated or whatever. So you were you were kind of into the 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 unique, yeah. Even from that, that um, time. music was definitely like a catalyst for that. Like I remember getting into like alternative stuff in like the late '90s when all my friends were exclusively listening to like hip hop and stuff like that. And then I think like the real defining moment was like the end, the first NERD album. There was a situation where, like, I had a friend of mine. This is how I'm old, so I'm dating myself a lot right here. I was at, well, I'm about to ask a, a question that's going to date both of us right after this. Yeah. So, so go go off. Yeah. So, um, it was at a time where people were burning CDs because, like, CD burning technology was a new thing. So, I had a friend that he would basically take, you know, buy whatever the new, like, a DMX or a Jay Z CD. And he would burn copies of them and sell them to, our, you know, his classmates or whatever for like five bucks a piece. I was doing that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I they were, you know, because the CDs were like $20 a piece yeah, at, yeah. at some of them, you know what I mean? So for a kid in high school, 
taking the 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 burned version for five dollars with you know relatively same audio quality and stuff like that made sense. Yeah. So I remember um, super being into the Neptunes, uh, you know Pharrell and stuff like that, and and NERD, and listening to like even like uh, early versions of the album. And just wanting to have it as like a CD so I could play it in my CD player and walk around school with my headphones on and shit. And I asked the kid to, to burn me a copy of this CD. So he couldn't find it online for some reason. So he bought the CD and made me a copy, assuming that he'd have make more copies for other people to listen to. After like two weeks, he came to me and he was like, yo, man, you just want the CD? What's up? How are you? What's up, pool place? So, um, uh, damn, where was I? I just had to say pool place because I got, I got a couple of her shirts. Speaking of clothes. Yeah, no, she makes good stuff. She makes good stuff. I got to holler at her, actually. But, um, damn, what was, what were we talking about? Uh, burning CDs, N-E-R-D. Yeah, yeah, So he came to me, he came to me and he was like, yo, do you just want the CD, bro? Because nobody wants this shit. This shit is weird. And like, I'm not going to burn, I'm not going to burn any more copies for any more people. So you could just take the original copy of the CD. You know what I mean? And I was like. I love this album so much. Like, this is, that's still probably my favorite album of all time. You know what I mean? So it was so funny to me that it was like this, I can absolutely tell this is amazing music, an amazing product. And it's a defining thing for me. And yet none of my classmates like this shit. So that was kind of like a defining moment for me, showing me that, you know, it doesn't have to be popular at all for it to be like world-class shit. You know what I mean? Yeah, like like what's what's popular is not always good, and what's good is not necessarily always popular. Correct. So when it you know speaking of moments, we're sitting in your in your this, this is your baby, this is your store, mm-hmm. right? Full of numerous polo coats yep. and sneakers and other such things. Right. Uh, and this is gonna be a two parter. One, and you know when you were saying we're dating ourselves, I'm. Mold too. You and I are of, of a certain age where we weren't born with the internet, but we saw like clothing as the internet where it was like just message boards, and now we're seeing it with like Instagram and TikTok and stuff. Everything, bro. How I have a friend, real quick. I oh, yeah, have sure. a friend, just want to plug this real quick. Uh, shout out to my boy, uh, Gus Dunbar. He's looking to uh, basically do some type of program where it's like a a 3d shopping experience where you're having almost like a virtual shopping experience inside the store and you can kind of like check out the product in like a 3d space and stuff like that so So this is like metaverse like shopping in the metaverse type type stuff that type of stuff as opposed to like you know clicking on like a jpeg picture and waiting like 30 seconds for it to load up into like a tiny corner of your screen and shit like that which is what we experienced early on you know i was i was gonna say like how um so i'm gonna ask this question first then i'm gonna go into the second part how much did that have an influence on you? Because you said you were you're looking at sites that, you know, had you were, you were teaching your brother even like you were seeing sites where like things were you know the sneakers that you were wearing, your brother wearing are now like these like sought after items. Right. So, how much of those early days of 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 I guess like fashion on the internet had an influence on you? Well, it was everything. Okay, I mean, so you still, were, you, were you deep like just in all the message boards and everything like yeah. Nike Talk? I mean, Nike like, Talk was huge. That. Yeah, I mean, Nike Talk was pre hype beast. Hype beast didn't really pop off until like early two thousand. Yeah, that was that was the blog era. Like Nike Nike Talk was like the message yeah. the and message before, board era. Even before that, there was a thing called Nike Park, which was like yes. which was like you would get like I said like the weird exclusive colorways and like PE pictures and stuff like that or like uh, releases. 
that were like maybe a couple months out or something like that. You know what I mean? And this was just like a peek into a world that didn't really exist before. There weren't, you know, magazines really posting pictures of player exclusives or anything like that. So it was this weird kind of like, just like wonderland of like, what is this stuff? And then when you got into, you know, obviously growing up in the in the 90s and stuff like that and, and being close to New York, you get to experience a certain level of like clothing culture and stuff like that. And then, you know, you go online and then you see Japan and the stuff that they have. And then you go, the Nike Co. JP. Jesus like, fucking Christ. And then, like, you know, uh-huh. that's what I'm saying. And then now you're seeing colorways of shoes that you love that you've never seen before that existed and they may have dropped two years ago and you're like chasing after this thing. It became an odd obsession, you know? I remember seeing Babestas for the first time and one of my friends going, telling me, oh, those are Japanese Nikes. And I'm like, but yeah. they don't have the check. Like what then? I didn't realize like till like later, like what they actually were, which is crazy. Yeah. The, everything pre-internet was so fun because you could just like speculate on things. You know what I mean? You could just pretend like you knew something like that. Like, oh, those are Japanese Nikes. Obviously yeah. those aren't Japanese Nikes. Well, well, also there's like a sense of discovery yeah. and like community when like you meet somebody where and they're wearing the thing you saw oh, on the board goodness. or you're wearing the thing they saw on the board and you're yes. like, ah, and like all yes. of a sudden like, it's yes. like, oh, we're into the same thing. Yes, hey. yes. Like, oh, you exist in this weird little world that yeah, I'm like, also like part physically, of. Like, I'm not just talking to you on a message board. Right. Like, there's real people who are yes. into this stuff. I know. That was amazing, kind of like bumping into those people occasionally. Yeah. It was, yeah. So, with that being said, and we're in this store right now, it's going to lead me to other questions down the line. But, um, you know, we're in the store where you were, there's, there's pieces, there's things that you have for sale. What for you were maybe some of the first experiences of like, oh, um, I have this thing that's valuable. I can sell it for money. Was it like a hand-me-down experience? Were you like selling it on eBay? Did somebody want it and you and you sold it to them? Like, what were some of those? What were some of those like first actual experience where you're like, oh, these things I'm wearing are like possibly even more valuable than what I paid for them? So the first experience that I had of selling something kind of like that wasn't even something that was mine. It was my brother's. Oh, okay. So he moved out again. You know, with, with it not carrying any relevance past its time of release and kind of like when it was popular at, at that time he moved out he moved out of the crib that we lived in together with stuff he went to go uh live with like his friends and like have roommates and shit like that stuff that you do when you're in the 20s and he left behind all, <clears throat> excuse me, all of these fire sneakers tons of like jordans that he might have worn like five or six times that they might have had a scuff on them or something literally 10 pairs of wheat tims with like one scuff on them each i guess it was before they invented like the eraser form or something yep, yep. and it was like if you had a scuff on your tim they were just toast so yeah, there were literally it. 10 pairs of wheat tims right in this room and he had a pair of the white and powder blue jordan 9 retros actually no i'm sorry i can't say retro they were the ogs right because this was I want to say in 99, maybe. Okay. And those shoes came out in 95, I want to say, 94, 95. So they were just sitting in his room, brand new, never warm. And I had a friend. He wasn't even that size anymore. He had grown out of them, which is why I think he never sold them. Oh, okay. He never wore them, okay. right? And he had just left them there. So I had a friend of mine, super into sneakers, just like I was, and I had shown him the shoes. And I remember selling them to him for like, I think it was like $300, which at that time was like, an astronomical amount of money to sell like an old pair of shoes for basically. Yeah. 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 But there was no, it was still like a culturally relevant shoe because it was a numbered Jordan that wasn't for sale at the time. 
in basically brand new condition that, you know, no one saw at all at that time. So like $300 to him was like a bargain. And it was like, I didn't pay anything for this shoe. I'm making 300 bucks. This is amazing. You know what I mean? But it was really more of the sense because like I couldn't do anything with the shoe. I couldn't wear it. My brother couldn't do anything with the shoe. He couldn't wear it. So what are we going to do with this? It was almost like for a long time, selling stuff that was special was almost like frowned upon. You know what I mean? And it took a while for me to figure out that it was like important to be able to kind of share some of the stuff. So with that being said, what was there multiple instances or what made you realize like, oh, this is a viable way to like make money? Like, I'm, even before, like, you know, in the current business, I know, like, like, was there, like, a moment or moments where you're like, oh, like, this is a sustainable way to make an income? I mean, at, at that point, definitely not. And, you know, years after, I would get into retail and work in sneaker stores and stuff like that. And that would give me, like, the chops to kind of learn what, you know, how to sell stuff in a way that was meaningful. But it was really, like, I don't know, what was, what was the question again? My bad. Like, were there a certain... Was there a certain moment or moments where you realize, like, you know, taking something and then like the flip, basically, right. like, but in this in in this particular arena that you're in, right. was a way to make like an income that could sustain itself. It wasn't until like the market kind of changed where a large percentage of people started going after a small percentage of product. Okay. You know, like there was always the shoes that were popular, the clothes that were popular, but they didn't really hold like a value past their retail value in most cases. It wasn't until like the limited edition sneaker, the, you know, certain SBs, uh, Supreme, things like that, where there was like a strategy to make it so that the supply was limited and that kind of helped drive up the demand, I guess you could say. So before that market change, yeah. um, you said you were working in sneaker stores and things like that. Right. Did you have aspirations to be in this world in some capacity, like as a designer or as yeah. like a, you know, a sneaker shop owner or something like that? Or, or was it just something that you did to make money? Or was it like, no, like you always wanted to be a part of this world, but maybe in, a different, maybe in a different capacity than yeah. what you are now? Always, always. I'll be honest with you, I want to make clothes. That's always been like my my big aspiration. I'm, and I know that I know enough about um, the field to do a lot of different things within it. Uh, the store kind of came about in a, a variety of different ways in terms of like how I got here. But the biggest thing for me in terms of what it what it will become is kind of like a catalyst for the stuff that I'm making, you know? I have now like a, a relatively decent audience of people who understand the the product that I sell and, you know, what level that stuff is at. And then I want to make product that kind of fits that same level, you know? Was that the idea from the, from the get, like even like way back when you were just like working at sneaker stores, learning about this, like, Hey, I'm going to learn about this stuff at the, at the ground level. So one day I can make clothes and sell them to people. Like that was that always the idea from the jump. It was, everything was going to be a catalyst towards that. I I, I don't know, maybe subconsciously, because I think it was a thing where I was taking in so much information that I knew that that wealth of information was going to pay off in some way. I didn't know really what it was. Like, I didn't know if I was going to end up working at Nike 
I didn't know if it was, you know, working as like a, a rep for a brand or what exactly it was going to be. So there be. wasn't a particular master plan of like, no. I am going to go down this path and do these milestones. No, I know I wanted to make clothes. That, gotcha. that was the one thing. Okay. It was like, I know that there's a variety of different paths that I can take in, in regards to doing that. But I know that ultimately it's like, if I die not making clothes, I won't be happy. You know what I mean? It was one of those things. It was like, I had to be on the list basically of things that I needed to do. Were you trying to go to like fashion school or design school or anything like that? It would have been nice. Unfortunately, okay. I didn't really do that well in school. And then I wasn't really all that motivated in terms of like trying to find a way to get to like a fashion school. You know? Gotcha. Okay. So. so with that being said, you know, these things are bubbling up and then you do at some point start Cured Collection, but what it was when it started and where it is now, um, it's almost like that friggin' meme, how it started, how's it going, <laughs> which culture. Anyway. Uh, first off, where did the name Cured Collection come from? So it's kind of like a twofold uh, situation, right? Where cured, you know, uh, traditionally is like a, a term used for something that's kind of like stored away until it's being like ready to be consumed. So that was kind of like the idea initially with some of the vintage stuff and even some of the current stuff where it's like, you know, it might be ready to be consumed right now because now is when it's most relevant. You know what I mean? So that was the idea of, of Cured Collection. It really hilariously started as like a, a, a page on my Tumblr. Oh, okay. Where I would post basically stuff that I thrifted. You know what I'm saying? It would be like an interesting polo something, an L.L. Bean or whatever. You know what I mean? But it wasn't even stuff for sale. It was just like I would post it there. It's interesting to see that polo and L.L. Bean and I look at the, the logo and then you're mentioning the polo. You're mentioning like, um, you're mentioning like, I think like a Nautica jacket or something before. Right. That logo reminds me of like, Tommy, it's like has like a Tommy Hill figure, like Nautica esque. You're talking about the, the cured logo? Yeah, the cured logo. Was, yeah. was that the thing from the jump? And did you design that or did somebody else design that? So that's funny. The, the original cured logo with the two C's and the colors and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. So I drew that on a napkin while I was like eating breakfast with my daughters. They had like some crayons out and stuff like that. The original kind of like inspiration was to combine almost like something nautical for like, uh, you know, Rhode Island and New England, that type of feel but also something that felt like luxury, but also felt nostalgic. You know, I so wanted like to combine... luxury, nostalgia, and yeah. then nautical yeah. all yeah. in one. Right, right, right. And then, you know, the nautical ties into those kind of like brands that play into that, right. like your Tommies and your Polos and your Nauticas and stuff like that. You know what I mean? So you're posted on Tumblr, you got all these different influences, you know, you want to make clothing someday. What, you know, you had the idea and the name for cured collection. What was a moment or a watershed moment where you're like, okay, like I'm going to now try and make money doing this. Was it somebody like pushing you saying like, Oh, you have a lot of knowledge. Was it, you went to, um, like a, like a trunk show or a pot, like, you know, or like, um, like a flea or something like that. And you were, and you did good. Like what, what was the thing that you go, Oh no, like this is, I'm going to actually try and make this a business. So shout out to stay silent. Um, I want to say maybe 2015, um, I was invited to basically some meetings with, uh, the good people at stay silent, Mahomie Hill, shout out to Hill kind of brought me in and, you know, the, we were just chatting about different things that they're doing in ways that, you know, um, we can kind of like expand on things that we do creatively. And um, as I was in those meetings, uh, uh, they were planning a pop-up, basically, in their space that they have called Trade Pop-Up, which is like a, 
I'm not exactly sure what they're doing with it now, but at the time it was like a rotating pop-up space where you could have like galleries and different types of like small events and galleries. Yeah, if, if you wanted to do a pop-up event, you could rent, you the, could, space you could rent the space out. Right. So they wanted to do like a month-long pop-up with local vendors and local brands and stuff like that. And they knew that I had, at the time I had a small like t-shirt collection that I was doing, uh, which was was supposed to be almost like merch for some music that I was doing with a friend of mine. It was called Grayskull. The group that we were that we were part of was that yes. was good. Hold on, You're, all right. I'm not going to interrupt that train of thought because one of my questions I'm just going to jump to it now was I was <clears> looking <throat> you up. All right, you know what? Maybe I get to have my Nardwar moment. Right. Grayskull LLC right. was that? Did you form yeah. Grayskull LLC back then? Because yeah. I was like, where does Grayskull LLC come right, from? Right. And I'm like, so yeah, hey, ask Grayskull, me about this. So the the musical group that we made kind of was called Masters of the Universe, right? And if you're familiar with Masters of the Universe, such a good show. Then you know that the the where they get the power, or He-Man, which is like the main character of the Masters of the Universe, gets his powers from Castle Grayskull. So the idea was basically like the, it was like a play basically on the idea of Masters of the Universe and the power of Grayskull, more or less. So um, at the time, I had that small t-shirt brand. We had a couple t-shirts left and stuff like that. And he had asked me if Jay, um, uh, Where's Nasty from Stay Silent, had asked me, if I wanted to be a part of the pop-up. And I said, that's cool. And he was like, you, you, you want to bring the t-shirts? And I was like, that's awesome. At the time, I had collected maybe like, I don't know, 50 vintage t-shirts and like a couple of denim jackets and stuff. So wait, this was stuff that you were collecting to sell along with your band's music or were you modifying it or doing like prints on top of it, was it or separate. something? It was oh, okay, separate. Okay, okay, it was okay, just okay. literally stuff that I was like finding at Thrift, stuff that my oh, okay, friend, gotcha, gotcha. My, shout out to, to to Jeff. He helped start the business with me. He was like sourcing a lot of the vintage stuff at first. And, you know, I, I had compiled basically like a decent selection of shirts because it was one of those things where, you know, you go out thrifting, you find some cool stuff for yourself. I have the unfortunate situation where I'm both uh, tall and wide. So there's tons of stuff that just doesn't fit me, even if it's like a 2XL or whatever. And, um, you know, you just find something that's dope in a medium or like a large. And it's like, you don't want to leave it there because, you know, you might know a, you know, a friend that, oh, it's a Dior trench coat in a size medium. You got to leave that there. You might have a friend that likes that or that wants that. At least do him the favor of buying it. If he doesn't want it, you can sell it to somebody else, whatever. That was initially the idea of me kind of collecting stuff. Um, and, you know, and then, like I said, it grew to like a small collection of T-shirts that I knew were dope just based on the graphics and stuff like that. I wasn't really doing the research in terms of like uh, maybe what the what the the market value was on these particular items yet because it was just like, you know, you're thrifting shirts for a couple bucks here and there. And just the fact that they're cool is enough for you to get, I don't know, 20 bucks, 30 bucks, 40 bucks say, out of it. Would you say that's a commentary on like the way you were sourcing stuff back then versus now? Because back then yeah. it, it was it was like you couldn't just go like on a site or like on, on a, on a grilled or on a stock X and see what like the average market price for that thing is. No, I mean, and at the time it wasn't even really, it wasn't really like a known thing. I don't think for you to just kind of be able to do that. And then gotcha. the, as well as the market here, I don't feel like was developed enough to even give a fuck what the market value of an item right. was. You know what I mean? Like fine, this shirt might be worth $300 to some guy in New York, but here in Providence, ain't nobody paying that shit for it. Right. So you did, you did that, pop-up at stay sounds trade pop-up place yeah. was successful i'm assuming so i show up with my 50 vintage t-shirts or whatever right? okay everybody's there setting up to do the pop-up and stuff like that i want to say i sold maybe 15 20 of the stuff that i brought in to people who were just setting up as vendors 
Oh, and so you sold like, it to the other vendors? Yeah. And I'm like, before we even started, I'm selling like fire stuff. Shout out to Drew. He still has like one of the illest joints I ever had. It's a Tony Braxton bootleg t-shirt. I know you still have that. Whenever you're done with it, please. I need that. But um, like just, a you know, it showed me basically that before the thing even started, people were picking at this stuff. And I'm like, wow, people are interested. You know, I, I, it was uh, an affirmation basically for me to show me that like, you know, there's some interest in that. And, you know, along the way, doing more things with them, doing more pop-ups, you know, after doing that pop-up where there were multiple vendors, I started doing solo pop-ups over there as well at Trade. And those started doing well. And those were just kind of like showing me that basically there were people in the area that were interested in this stuff and that I could kind of continue collecting and, and curating, um, you know, a selection of interesting vintage pieces for people. Were you doing other events time, like um, like flea markets and stuff like that? I was just solely the trade pop-ups. So I did the trade pop-ups for maybe like a year. And then um, I had did something with, uh, with Long from Bad Taste. Because at the same time that I'm doing these pop-ups, he opens up Bad Taste. And I'm like, you know, I can only do these pop-ups on the weekends because that's when trade basically is, is open. So... How can I kind or of or any other pop up like right. flea market event? They're usually on the weekend. Exactly. So I'm like, how can I have you know more eyes on this stuff throughout the week? You know, I go and I holler out long, and we're talking, and I'm like, you know, I got a wild selection of vintage stuff. It would behoove the both of us to kind of do something where I'm bringing in product, and it freshens up your selection while giving me an opportunity to sell this. You take a percentage, and you know, we keep it rocking. And that worked for a while, and you know. I would, you know, I would hit him up. Yo, you sell anything? Yeah, we sold three t-shirts. I'd bring in 20. You know what I mean? And it would be to the point where he was like, yo, dude, you have clearly enough stuff to open a store. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I don't know if I'm ready for it. I have a job. At the time, I was like working at T-Mobile and stuff like that. And it wasn't really, the vintage stuff wasn't really hot enough in my mind to be able to sustain it like as a living. The market demand wasn't what it yeah. is now. Right, right. So, you know, um, I did that for a little while and then we stopped doing that. And then I started doing the Providence flea and the Providence flea was really like the indicator for me because it was like one day that we just, you know, we killed it. You know, we were in front of like the right amount of people, the right, the right people. And, uh, what I had made that day was basically what I made in two weeks at T-Mobile. Can you describe just, uh, Longston's bad, not that, you know, if you listen to the show, you should probably go listen to the Logston Bad Taste episode. Not right. not now. Keep continuing this thing. Go back if you want. Same with the Jay and Sabrina Stay Silent episode. Right. Um, but again, finish this one first, then go back to it. But uh, could you explain, because I, I think you did explain, like, what the pop trade pop was. Can you explain, um, just for anybody listening who doesn't know these references, what Longston was doing and selling at the time that you were able to sell in his store and, like, how that connection was made just to just to give the reference and kind of explain it a little bit and then also after that what providence flea is right so um long has this well has a store called bad taste it was in the arcade downtown where i have my first store as well we'll get into that in a second and um he was selling a variety of like vintage clothing um different like uh like accessories and like kind of like nostalgic kind of things, comic books, um, like video game stuff, like interesting assortment of nostalgia, I think is the best way to describe it. Like a nostalgia store, but like cool. 
Yeah, for sure. Like, for sure. like it felt way cooler than like all the other nostalgia cards yeah. at comic stores. If you if you're familiar with like round two or anything like that, I would say it's similar to like the vintage stuff that they sell. Is a is a good way to kind of describe what he was doing. And you being a He Man fan, this makes sense now. Of course, of course. I mean, it's it, it the the whole thing about nostalgia and and like all those pieces and things is obviously it's different for different people depending on how old you are or whatever. Exactly. Right? But the feeling for the most part is the same, right? Gotcha. So like what I say, especially when it comes to the vintage stuff or even just even like the modern stuff that I sell, it's like obviously I sell a product, but it's a feeling that I sell that, that comes with the product. You know what I mean? Not to interrupt. I'm, I'm glad that you're explaining the long thing, but it was funny. There was a quote at the, the CEO of Coca-Cola at the time. This, this quote's like probably a decade or two old. He was like, we don't sell soda. We sell you the feeling of when you had that first Coca-Cola. Oh, wow. He's like, that's what we're selling. He's like, we're not selling you soda. He's like, there's like, there's so many companies that sell soda. He's like, what we sell you is nostalgia and a feeling. He's like, so whenever you buy a Coke, what we hope it does is trigger a memory of like when you had a Coke with your dad and when he took you to a baseball game or like when you had it at a summer cookout and you fell in love with like that, you know, that cute boy you saw. Like, we're selling you that. So it's funny how you just mentioned that. I was like, I was like, oh man, that's like the same thing the dude from Coke Cola. He's like, right. dude, we're not in the business of selling you soda. We're in the business of selling you a, like because they're so known now. Right. They're in the business of selling you the nostalgia of the product that we actually right. made years ago. Right, which is funny because that's kind of like crack. Yeah, yeah, that's the, the chasing the dragon and shit. You know, that's hilarious that the the guy from Coke said that. Yeah, you know, and, and so I, I don't know if he's still a see, but like at the time, like and he said that, I'm like, that is so insane. He's like, yeah, dude, we don't sell soda; we sell nostalgia and memories. Yeah. So the cool thing about you know partnering with Long is he's super cool. So when we did the, you know, I did basically like an installment where I was bringing in stuff for a couple months. We even did like a little pop up um, party and stuff like that. We made some T-shirts that were like. It was like a play on the the polo dual flag situation where it's like oh, okay, one yeah. had like the bad taste logo, the other one had like the cured collection logo. It was like a really good turnout, honestly, for for um, you know what the party was and stuff like that, which I thought was cool. And then, like like I said, he you know he kind of gave me the idea, like you know you should have a store. And then when the, an opening came up in the arcade, he hit me up and he was like, "Dude, there's a there's a spot available." We'll get into that in a moment. And also, you're doing the Providence Flea. And I think that's another oh, yes, thing that's yes. very well known, at least in this state, because um, we're in Providence, Rhode Island. Because like, right. the Providence Flea is pretty big as far as like flea markets within the state go. So right. you were doing that as well, correct? Yeah. So it was literally like right after I stopped doing the, the, the pop-up situation with Long, I jumped right into doing the Providence Flea. It was like, I think maybe the last week of the pop-up thing that I did with Long might have been in May. And then in the, the first week of June, I started the Providence Flea. Now, I have a question about that because social media obviously existed at that time. Um, were you promoting and selling? Because I know Long was definitely from, you know, the, uh, again, going to cross promote here shamelessly because I need to. Um, you know, Long was talking about how he was using social media to his fans, things like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now the idea of like selling vintage pieces and flipping things and having a business compute completely online with no physical presence is like an, is I want to say the norm, but it's a norm, yeah, right? Sure. It's, it's not, it's not completely unheard of. Were you utilizing social media at the time as well? How were you utilizing it? Um, were you thinking like, maybe I can, like if I have this physical thing, I can have a following, I can just sell completely online. Like how were you utilizing it? Then? I think I was so relatively inactive online that, I looked at it like my following was so small that it wasn't going to be enough of a 
enough of a like an effect for me to just do things solely on social media you know what i mean like it was enough for me to kind of get a gauge on how people felt about certain things but it wasn't enough for me to to sell things you get some interest you get some people hitting you up yo i like this how much is it etc etc but it wasn't like a store you know there's something that's different about being able to view a variety of uh, of of items at the same time to kind of like discern what you like versus like even on a you know on a website where you're just looking at things kind of like individually on a page and stuff like that. Yeah, you yeah. actually get to like touch and feel the yeah, items and, yeah. and possibly try them on, which right. is a whole different experience. Exactly. So you're doing the flea, you're getting real life interest, not right. social media interest. Right. Um, and you're convinced. Was there like a certain amount of like money that you were making, or was it just like it just the idea kept coming into your head? You're like, you know what, I'm gonna pull the tr- I'm gonna pull the trigger and, and and do the store route at the Providence um arcade, which is if anybody's listening to this, it is not a video game arcade. Arcade has a different definition. It is the America's fir- oldest and first shopping mall. Yeah, uh, in indoor, indoor uh, shopping mall. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you know, a little little uh, little trivia fun fact there. Um. So what made you pull the trigger and go, okay, I'm going to open the storefront? Like I said, we had like, you know, I was leading to that eventually just because I hated working at T-Mobile. It was like a job where I was just, you know, just doing it to do it and, uh, you know, just getting the check or whatever. And clearly working in clothing was like my passion and then doing this and, you know, with vintage, you get to kind of explore so many different avenues of clothing because there isn't like a defined one thing or even like several things that kind of constitutes what vintage is, I guess you could say, right? So you get to explore uh, different materials, cuts of, of things, designers at certain times of their careers, all these different kind of like um, aspects and stuff. Damn, I totally forgot what question you were asking me. I'm so sorry. Uh, what was the, was there a, a moment or moments that, made you just go all right i'm pulling the trigger like i'm actually gonna go and like find the storefront and pay rent yeah oh so hilariously um so like i said i was working at t-mobile and long had told me that there was a spot available um in the arcade and that i should go check it out because it would be dope for us to be kind of like in the same spot selling vintage because the idea you had already worked with them so you're like okay. yeah and it was like the idea was basically like you know, it gives more more reason for people to come shop here because now there's two spots that have dope stuff, you know? So hilariously, the day that I went to go check out the spot in the arcade, it was like before my shift at T-Mobile, maybe like at one o'clock. I show up at my shift at two, two o'clock at T-Mobile. By 2.15, I'm fired. So it was one of those situations where it was almost like destiny because I was so like elated that they were firing me. It was hilarious. I was, uh, yeah, I walk in and I could tell like it was about to happen. They're like the, the DM was there. They bring me into like the back room and they're like, no, we need to have a talk with you. And I'm like, I got to smile ear to ear. Cause I'm like, yo, I feel like they're about to fire me. This is about to be awesome. And they're, uh, you know, they're telling me like, Hey, you know, it was like some weird paperwork thing where like some paperwork had gotten left out. And because I had done it three times, I'd gotten rid of it up and you know, that type of nonsense basically. So it's like they were almost like looking for something. Yeah, rather, yeah. It was rather than like you know, like like you did something messed up. Like no, like we're trying to look for an excuse. Here's yeah, the excuse. Absolutely, and okay. I was super ready for them to give me that excuse. And they were like super not expecting me to just basically wait for them to finish talking and be like, yeah, "Well, you bye. know, yeah." I was like, you know, it was a great opportunity that you guys gave me. Thank you. It was lovely working with you. Like, and he's uh, taking this really well. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, see you guys later. Thanks for giving me the summer off. 
And they were like, uh, did you leave anything here that you need to grab? I was I like, oh, I, like, I looked around a little bit. I was like, um, nope, I'll uh, see you later. And, you know, just kind of like, yeah, it was amazing because then I got to work basically the rest of the summer doing the Providence Flea more exclusively. And I can, I took the time that I would have taken working at that job to kind of like bolster what I was doing with that. And then by the time the Providence Flea ended was basically when I was about to get the key to get into the store for the arcade. So it was like it rolled right into that. So I think this is interesting because, so you get fired from your job and you're happy about it. Oh my God. Uh, do you, ever, you, I know you have a family now. Did you, that, yes. did you have a family at the time? Okay. Yes. So at that time you had a family yes. that you're like having to support yep. what, whatnot. Um, how did you, cause I think this is an interesting question for whoever I interview on the show. How did you raise the initial capital for, I mean, a number of things, right? Cause like, but, and we'll get into that too. Like there's the rent you have to pay in the store and then there's the inventory. So how did you raise that initial capital? Did you, take out a loan because i know there's a million ways to do it how did how did you do that for the initial well um like i said i had a friend that we were like partnering i was partnering with initially to kind of like source product and stuff like that and then when we were getting things together for the store we were kind of like just splitting the cost so you know we'd split like the profits and in terms of like we were making with the vintage and then we'd split the cost on more or less and we just kind of like did it as cheaply as possible the rent in the arcade wasn't super expensive so we were just kind of like, all right, you know, if we just sell this much daily, then we can pay the rent and, you know, eat, basically. Yeah, it's like we have know? to hit this number, and yeah. then if we hit this, it's like we won't starve to death. Right, exactly. It was more or less that type of situation. And I had faith in what I was doing and the product that I was selling and the interest in it based on, you know, the weeks and weeks of, of selling stuff prior to that. So I was just like, you know. While we definitely have to hit these bare minimums to be able to sustain the business and kind of like feed ourselves, um, I have faith that we'll be able to do better than that. And we did. Mm-hmm. So one thing that I want to ask, because I think there's something unique about your particular line of business when it comes to inventory, other than diff- other businesses, right? Like other businesses, it's like you have a manufacturer supplier that you order insert widget here from. You get the widget at one price. You then put it on display in the store. You sell it for a higher price. You keep the difference. Right. That's basically it, right? Um, but there's that reliability of like, I talk to this supplier and they supply the, or like I am making the widgets myself and I know how to put them together. Whereas this arena that you're in is unique in that there's not like one specific place you're going to to get the inventory. Nope. And the inventory cost can vary wildly depending on the supply and demand. It's almost like the stock market, but mm-hmm. then there's like actual physical goods you need. Yeah. So two-parter, how did you figure out like how much initial inventory you needed for that store opening? <laughs> so, and, how, and how do you, and just how do you go about getting inventory in general? So I mean, maybe the first one is how do you go about getting inventory in general? Because you're in such a unique arena where it's not like, like you're, yeah, you're dealing in sneakers and clothing, but it's not like you're going to a, a manufacturer and getting X amount of t-shirts and then like printing on them yourself. You're not like running a clothing brand at the time. And it's not like you're getting sneakers made. Like you have to go find this in various places and may, more so now you can find out the average cost of like a retro pair of sneakers. But back then you couldn't. So like, how are you just, how do you, how do you source inventory in something like this where it varies wildly? I think that's an interesting back-end business question that I don't think people maybe think about where it's like, yeah, how do you even source all this stuff? You find it, man. I mean, yeah, that's the easiest way to, to, yeah. to put it is you find it. Initially, it was a lot of thrifting. 
you know. Okay. Luckily, um, like I said, my boy Jeff, he did a lot of sourcing and he worked a job at the time that allowed him to travel a lot of like uh, kind of like the Northeast, like uh, New England type of area. So he'd be able to kind of like jump around and do different things. I'd go around and thrift myself as well. And, uh, you know, at that time in, you know, 2016, 2017, it wasn't, it wasn't as exposed, I guess, as you could say in terms of where you'd be able to find uh, some of the product and, you know. There's, like, still a mystique around it. Right, right, right. You know, and then it was all different ways, man. Like, you know, you can go to the flea market, uh, and you might be able to find stuff at the flea market, you know. You might bump into a guy that's been collecting band tees for the last 20 years, you know what I mean? And he's, they don't fit him anymore or something like that. So there's all sorts of different ways, especially with vintage, to get the stuff, you know what I mean? Now, how did you figure out, oh, um, quick sub-question, the way you source product now because you've leveled up the operation, right. is it, has it varied besides just scaling? Has it varied wildly since what you were doing back then? Or is, or is the yeah. tech, or is the te- or, all right, so it has varied wildly, yeah. okay. I mean, I, I don't have time to thrift anymore, unfortunately. Um, my boy Jeff isn't a part of the business anymore. So uh, I more or less, when it comes to vintage, I rely a lot on other vintage uh, like sellers, basically. Or uh, thrifters who come in and they they don't necessarily have an outlet to consistently sell through, so I can kind of like you know help them part ways with their products and stuff like that, and they help me kind of build a a more curated uh, vintage selection, more or less. Now, how did you amass enough product to open the initial store? Because you probably need to like fill the unless you're going for that minimalist look, which that's a thing too, but you needed to fill the shelves to some capacity to have enough in there so that somebody could look in and have choice and different sizes and things of that nature. Um, just months of collecting. Just, it was just months of collecting. Months was of there a certain number you were trying to hit? Like, I need no. this many pieces? Okay. Because the thing was is that at the time, my my living room was filled with just vintage pieces and my girl was losing I was going to say, where's your girl? Just like, get this yeah, stuff out of here yeah. now. She was losing her mind. It was like uh, occupying just way too much space in our in our living space, unfortunately. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, you, you take these long gaps in between selling stuff, even if it's just a week from weekend to weekend, or you might go three weeks without doing like an event or whatever. And that gives you, depending on how long you're out there, three weeks of going out and finding product you know what i mean you do that enough times and now you've amassed a good wealth of stuff was she happy just like you started the stores like oh great the stuff's out of the living room oh man she was so happy <laughs> to get it out she's like good like, good get it out of here like, now yeah, exactly like can i help you load this into the car you know like <laughs> it, was, it was hilarious so yeah it was it was one of those situations where it was again just building kind of like the the collection over time and then you know as we went on, we just added more and more stuff. Were there things, I, I, like, I like getting into the tactical too, if anybody who's listening to the show knows, the tactical stuff is always helpful. Mm-hmm. It's half of why I do what I do besides like just the cool stories. Was there anything from a tactical or business standpoint of opening the store, like oh, that opening the store experience of like stuff you just didn't expect? Where you're like, oh, I didn't know this was a problem or I didn't know I had to have like this kind of paperwork or like this is this is crazy. Like I didn't know I had to be able to, I had, I had to do X, Y, and Z. I mean, some of the weird licensing stuff, you know what I mean? That it's like, uh, just odd things that you have to pay for. You know what I mean? That's like a weird, like $10 fee for something that you got to pay for quarterly. And it just doesn't really make any sense sometimes. You know, you, you find out when you go and like, you it's get like a the notice. bank fees of something. You're like, I didn't, yeah. what, like, what is, what is this fee? 
it's, it's just, it, you know, it, obviously over time you learn, you know what I mean? There are certain things that, that come up and you got to just, you get a notice for them or whatever the case may be. But, uh, you know, everything was a learning experience at the time. So I wasn't really surprised by anything, to be completely honest with you, because almost everything was kind of a little bit of a, a new experience. So, and this brings me to a question, how were you learning the business stuff? Did you have somebody that influenced you or mentored you kind of like in the way that your brother influenced you in like those early days of clothing? Or were you just learning this all on your own from wherever you could get the information from, from the business standpoint? So I think just working in the retail landscape for a long time kind of gave me enough knowledge to more or less understand what I needed to do. And then I was able to learn more of the back end stuff as I, you know, as I went along, I guess you could say. Well, I noticed you have an LLC and I think that that is something that is good to have. Right. Cause I think especially now with people flipping stuff on your stock X's or your grails or um, even just online or somebody's like, I'm going to start like a street burber. And that was that craze. But then nobody thinks about like taxes and stuff yeah, like that. Um, was that something you knew? Cause you had grayscale LLC. Right. Uh, was that something you knew you needed to have in the beginning or was that something that somebody put you onto? And can you explain why having an LLC is important? Cause I think that's something that'd be valuable to anybody listening to this who wants to get into the whole, I'm going to sell sneakers and vintage and whatnot. Well, I'm, I'll be honest with you. No, I, w- I was put on to the idea of an LLC and, and the importance of that because I knew that eventually it was going to be something that was considered a business. Even when I was just doing like the, the t-shirts for, for the merch for, for Grayskull, which, you know, obviously didn't really turn into anything, but I, I knew that if it was going to become something of significance that I needed to get kind of like the back end stuff in order more or less. Um, I mean, if you're if you're gonna be doing anything where you're gonna be making like a a decent amount of money, you have to have that legality behind it just to be able to kind of like protect yourself in the long run. Yeah, you know just I mean? just and protect your assets, or exactly. otherwise somebody can sue you to oblivion. Exactly, and you, you get taken to the cleaners. And like you know, you hear stories of people that they've gone through certain situations with you know entities or whatever the case may be. So. I feel like a lot of times that, you know, just do the proper research for whatever the business type that you're getting into is. And obviously whatever the, you know, whether it's like an S Corp or an LLC is that that would be best fit for your situation. You know, just, just look into it, I guess you could say. And I noticed even from the jump, because I had been to the, the, the store in the arcade, um, that you had employees other than yourself working there. Right. Um, can you walk through just how you evaluate and like determine like, Oh, I need more than just me running this because just from a scaling perspective. And how did you figure out like, yes, you're going to be employee like number one or like one through five. Like, how did you go about hiring? Was that a weird process for you? It's like, Oh, I got to determine now people that are going to work here when I'm not here. Yeah. It's a weird thing still to the day because you have to, you you, have to hand the reins over to somebody and trust them. Yeah. Uh, It was, it's, I think I have pretty awesome people working for me for the most part. You know, they do a really great job. And um, I think it's just finding the right people for the the gaps that you need filled. You know what I mean? Okay. Initially, it was more or less people that could do a version of what I do or like a diluted version of me, I guess you could say. Because it's like, obviously, when you start something, you're doing something, you're never going to find someone who's going to love it as much as you do or is as passionate about it as you are. Otherwise, they'd start their own thing. Correct. So, you know, just having someone who's at least moderately as passionate or as knowledgeable as you definitely helps in regards to whatever field it is that you're doing and stuff like that. 
So I feel like I found people. And then like now, the people who I have working for me are all kind of like creatives in, in one way or another. And then they, a lot of the times they use those aspects of their creativity to kind of add onto what it is that we're doing. It's all about the feeling. I found it interesting when Sudi brought up the idea of nostalgia, and that how each person perceives nostalgia can vary, but the feeling of nostalgia is the same. And at the end of the day, that is what Sudi and by extension Cured Collection are selling. A feeling. And when you think about it, that's pretty much what branding is. How the general public perceives and feels about you and the brand you represent. As someone who has supported Cured Collection over the years, I can personally attest to the fact that Sudi and crew definitely sell a feeling. I could easily get sneakers and pieces from places like Grailed or StockX, but the sense of community, being able to talk to the staff about the history of a particular piece, the feeling of being there simply can't be replicated online. So ask yourself, what type of feeling are you putting out into the world? noticed you know you're talking about the the um you're doing like the the pop-up event with long uh and you did, you did the branded t-shirts and everything and even in the in those early days in the arcade you know there was there is there, there is still now but even back then there was this sense of community around the store and you know the brand whatever you want to call it when did you notice that? When did you know, like, oh, there's like a community building around this thing? Because I think there's like businesses and brands, but not all the time do communities form around the business or brand. Like, I think that is something special. And like, did you know, like, was there a certain point where you noticed that? And like, what did that make you like realize anything? You're like, oh, like, wow, there's a community of like people around this. And they, it's like, it's not just customers being transactional. I mean, it was just finding like-minded people, you know? people who would come into the store and you know be happy with a purchase and that led to them coming in or telling their friends about it and you know just building like interesting relationships with people and then you know coming to the conclusion that they're really supportive in a way where it feels like a like a community i'd still kind of like boggles my mind a little bit you know does it still just weird you out like oh there's a community around this yeah it's still kind of i'm still kind of like grasping onto the idea of it because it's like you know i do a thing that i that i love um luckily for for work and i try not to think about it too much more past that you know and you know I, i understand that you know it's it's significant in a lot of different ways for a lot of different reasons or whatever, but you know, I just, I try not to think about it too crazily. Honestly, it just, it's, it's an interesting aspect. And I love the fact that people like it and, and, and we're doing it. And I feel as time goes on and we build more of a, a community aspect to the store. Like one of the things that we have is we have like a bulletin board in the front of the store where people can put like flyers and stuff like that for, events that they're doing or like businesses that they have and stuff like that. So I feel like when, once people feel like, you know, there's like a shared energy in terms of like, um, 
the beneficial aspects of the store, then I could feel like, all right, this is definitely a good community because not only am I eating from this, but all of these other people are eating from it as well. One thing um, that I think is important in any business is knowing when and how to scale and scale properly. Because if mm. you scale up too quickly and you stretch too thin, then the business can fail. Right. Um, but there's a, a tipping point where you need to scale. So we are now in the Providence Place Mall. And what caused, and like you had to jump around a little bit in the Providence Place Mall, which is a mm. whole other thing. Yep. You could do a whole separate show on that, even. <laughs> Fun times. Uh, what made you determine that you needed? Like, was it you out, you outgrew, you needed to scale? Like, like because you're in the, the arcade. The arcade's still around. It's, it's kind of a shadow of its former self now, mm. which is interesting because there were some other businesses in there and now they have left. But for your particular business, what made you determine, okay, we need to, we need to move and, you know, we need to scale. We need to get, we need to leave this place. And also, you know, Province Place Mall is a, it's a huge mall. It takes up like X amount of blocks in a city center. What made you determine, yeah, we need to scale up and move, and yeah, we're going to move into the mall? A couple of different things. So I loved the arcade, man. It was an awesome place to start. Um, a few unfortunate things about downtown are, um, and the arcade specifically, are the parking downtown sucks. Oh, so, it's, it's awful. Yeah, it's, it's, it's beyond awful, because it's like, at least if there was stuff available, then you could justify, like, paying, but then it's like, you have to drive around for 15 minutes just to find something that you got to pay, like, an absurd amount of money for. So with customers who particularly are shopping vintage, a lot of times they're thinking economically. And if you've got to spend money just to be able to park before you can even get into the store, it's kind of like a, a step backwards a little bit, you know? So a thing that I realized over time was we were building um, the business and we were growing in terms of our audience, but the numbers weren't really growing that much. And I had to figure out a way to kind of, you know, to change that more or less. So I was looking at different things, and I knew, obviously, that Province Place Mall, with its proximity being so close to the arcade, um, that it was a, probably a good place to maybe even just do some advertising. So I inquired, and um, I was just looking maybe for like a kiosk or something like that. And I talked to the people at Province Place Mall, and they looked at the page, and they looked into the, the, the business in the arcade, and, you know, they kind of proposed a small location, like a small store. You know, we talked numbers and it made sense. One of the reasons why it made a lot of sense as well was because with, I said, the parking being so bad in the arcade and stuff, I remember people telling me that they would literally drive to the mall and park in the mall and then walk to the arcade from the mall. Because sometimes that's the only way you can like park downtown because right. like there's not enough street parking and then like you just park in the mall because it's in, it's in the middle of the city and then right. you walk everywhere else you need to. Exactly. So I was thinking to myself, like, all right, well, if I'm going to go somewhere, right, wouldn't that be, like, a main priority? Because if people are having a hard time parking for the location or whatever, then being in a place that's got a tremendous amount of parking in the middle of the city would probably be And a lot of foot traffic. Exactly. So, like, even with Thayer Street, that's, like, a comparable shopping kind of, like, uh, experience in terms of, like, I live on Thayer Street, and parking is a mess. It's, exactly. So, you know, in terms of, like, parking plus good shopping center, plus foot traffic, this is the thing that made the most sense to me. So funny enough, kind of coming full circle, I feel like Bayer is a shadow of its former self because now it's just like a mall food court on yeah. street. I mean, it's really. It's crazy because it was such an interesting, diverse kind of like shopping experience when you went to, to there. And Not now anymore. it's just very, you know, everything's like homologated now, man. It's unfortunate. It was like, oh, there's a Shake Shack and a Chipotle. 
Yeah, I know. It's, well, oh my god! What can you do, man? It's like sometimes cool things they pop up there, but you know, I mean, I don't know what the rent like is over there. But I, could, I would expect that it's pretty expensive, you know. So actually, it leads that actually leads into an interesting question about were there any challenges or unexpected things that you had scaling into the mall? Were there things you had to provide the mall as far as in terms like just things you had to prove, like hey, I make this much money, so I can sustain this year? Were there Things with the rent that were unexpected, or was there anything in the mall, like scaling into the mall in and of itself, that was either difficult or unexpected that you had to deal with? Besides jumping around a couple of times, if you want to get into that, feel free. <laughs> I don't think it was. It was one of those things where I kind of prepared myself for more or less whatever it could bring. You know, I knew that there were certain things I was going to have to change moving into the mall. Um, I was going to have to do a little bit more modern stuff in terms of like the streetwear. Cause I always, even in the arcade, we had like a, a decent selection, of, like streetwear stuff and a small selection of footwear, but the concentration was primarily on the vintage for sure. But when we moved to the mall, I knew that I had to basically, uh, add a lot more footwear and a lot more streetwear to at least bring people in to look at the vintage, you know? So I think this leads perfectly into the next questions. You, ladies and gentlemen, you would have uh, you would have thought we would plan this, but not really. Uh, it's only to a degree. <laughs> I've noticed, like you know, you obviously have a unique eye, a unique sense of style. You're, you know, um, it may not be the best term. It's the one I can think of all the time. You're a tastemaker. Uh, how do you balance your personal taste and your discerning eye for what you like, and or maybe like what we might what may be, you know profitable or just culturally relevant in the future versus the needs of your customer base right now like how do you balance those two out so i've had like i said uh, retail experience for a variety of years prior to like uh opening a store and one thing i understood was that um the things that i'm into might be like a little a little ahead of the curve in terms of what the general public might be into or versus what the general public might be into and understanding that, you know, I've got to provide product for uh, a discerning customer, but a, a, a wide array of customers, you know. So I, the way that I look at it in terms of like picking product for the store is I look at it like a version of me would, would buy everything in the store. Like there's a version of me that would buy everything that I have here, more or less. So whether it be the 15-year-old me or the 24-year-old me, or the maybe the me that didn't stay here in Rhode Island and moved to New York, you know? There's a version of me that would buy more or less something that we have here, and that's kind of like the way I determine whether or not it'll be here or not. With, with that being said, too, because especially this, you know, with vintage, right? Like, vintage is, I don't want to say having a moment because there's always been vintage, but, like, the way it's exploded right now is different than what, you know, Vintage, like people that are into vintage have probably seen before, right? right? Um, even just, I'm looking at the sneakers on the wall, like Dunks X amount of years ago, everybody was selling them because no one cared yeah. and now Dunks are just back. Yeah. So with that being said, how do you keep up with a trend so your store is relevant but you don't over-rotate and go all in on the trend and then if the trend, because we've seen, um, you know, I guess in the, I don't know, oh, this will be a, a different question but like in the streetwear era where like we're certain like everybody had a streetwear brand and then like the trends of that era died and a right. lot of those brands who went all in on those trends died with the trend right. so how are you how do you keep up with the trend and source product to that trend since you're not making it yourself but you don't over rotate to the point where like 
you're going to lose like a certain amount of money and possibly have the store go under if you go too much all in on that trend. Well, you never just put too many, you know, you don't put the, what was the term with the eggs in the basket? Yeah. Don't, don't pull all your eggs in one basket. That thing. So that's important. But the other thing is, you know, there's, there's like a, it's like a pyramid of like fashion kind of like, um, interest, I guess you could say, right? So at the very tippity top, you have like the super tastemakers, the people who make the trends or define the trends and stuff like that. They're at the, at the kind of like the, the arrow point of, of fashion, uh, cultural uh, relevance, right? And then as it goes further down, right, you have more people and things that are less kind of like new or fresh or whatever. And then as it goes down, more people, less fresh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the thing about that is that while something might be trending in a certain way now, let's say, right, as it dies down, it kind of makes its way down that pyramid. So for instance, right, for me and you, I'm sure you could probably say like dunks are toast. You know, they're so super overexposed. Everybody's got panda dunks. It's kind of like this thing where it's like if you're like a sneakerhead or even like a discerning kind of like fashion guy, dunks are kind of like the easy, almost kind of like toast choice. Yeah. I'm only going after like the original collegiate colorways or stuff or like the ones I think that I most recently got was like a it was beat up, but they were still wearable pair of like sabotages because right. those are like. Yeah. For me, at least in my, in like they my era, something. they meant something. Yeah. They mean something, you know, of course. And then, uh, like, I don't expect people to to, to deviate from a trend uh, if something mean if that trend means something. To yeah, them, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Like that's that's silly. But at the same time, you know, there's people who might not be as savvy as we are, who you know still think dunks are super cool. They collect dunks. They've got all of the colorways and stuff like that, and that's the thing that they're into right now. And then there's going to be, you know, the guy that's, you know, below him that they just learned what the panda dunk was maybe like a week ago. And they've been on TikTok looking at all these little like videos showing people wearing them and now they're infatuated with it. You know what I mean? So there's like, there's, you know, a way that it kind of like diffuses out into the masses where it's still beneficial to me, but I have the foresight to know to stop at a certain point, I guess you could say. So with that, what is your opinion on the term streetwear? And we've heard, you know, honestly, we like the collective, we have heard from people like Bobby Hundreds, Jeff Staple, kind of chime in on whether or not the, the term streetwear should be deaded completely. Virgil Abloh had an opinion on the term streetwear. Uh, may he rest in peace. That was, um, it's riled some people up actually. Mm -hmm. Uh, what is your opinion on the term streetwear? Do you think it's an accurate term? Do you think that that term needs to go away? Um, just like, what is your take on it? I think streetwear now kind of defines a particular aesthetic that was, you know, a certain like look, like, uh, you know, your graphic tees, your, or even like an arrow, your crooks and castles, your 10 deeps, your, you know, things like that, that had like a certain feel and aesthetic to it, you know, your karma loop kind of vibe and stuff like that. And while there's still brands that you can say fit that description, you know, I feel like now they're further defining what they're doing in a way where it's 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 differentiating themselves from just being streetwear, you know? 
Like, you know, you can say that Supreme is streetwear, but it's a brand for skateboarders. You know what I mean? And also that brand and the evolution of that brand is different than the evolution of those other those brands. brands. Correct. Correct. But that's like a brand that's still around. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where you could have kind of shoehorned it into that style just because it was a popular style and it fit in that kind of mold. You know what I mean? I was going to ask you a question about the evolution of Clint. I think you already hit the nail on the head with that one. So we can, we can move along. What's um, that? No, I was going to say, I was going to ask about how, like how things have evolved in the past five years, but I think you already described it perfectly. Just with just with those statements, okay. um, can you describe the term? Because I know something on, on your about page for the store, and I think it's a really good term. And I don't know if you've heard it, if you came up with it, and if you came up with it, it's genius, and you need to trademark it. Collectible fashion, because I've never heard somebody call it collectible fashion. I'm like, that's like, yeah, like, that's kind of perfect. But I've never heard somebody just use it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think is it's that something like you a, heard, or is that just like something like, yeah, uh, this is what we do. It just literally is the words that describe what it is that we kind of sell. It wasn't really like a like a catchphrase or anything. It's just like a really concise way to describe the things in it, and it explains the the value of it for people who might not necessarily understand why uh, a shirt that's worn from nineteen eighty nine might be worth two hundred dollars. You know, it's because it's collectible. You know, and in the short, easy way to describe it to someone without kind of going into like a full blown. Well, because this person did this and this and that, and there's only so many blah, 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 the specifics of it, the simple way to say it is just that it's collectible because there's people out here that are paying money for it because they want it. Have you noticed anything just running this store over the years? Um, have you noticed anything about, uh, Steve and I had, had, I think, had a similar discussion before. Notice anything about like American customers versus international customers because we do get a lot of college students here that are international from like Brown and RISD, so they come from different countries. Have you noticed anything where it's like, oh, I've noticed like the American kids or even like the New England and Providence-based people or customers are going towards these trends and these pieces versus like I am noticing the international, you know, customers are going towards like these pieces and these trends. Like, have you seen any differences like that? Well, you know, the, the international guys are just obviously a little bit more informed, I feel. You know, they're they're traveling around a little bit. They're in shops that have brands that we might not have, you know. So they're a little bit more familiar with the international fashion landscape than your Rhode Island or New England customer, you know, who might not who might just be exposed to the brands that are in front of them or presented to them by media, I guess you could say, you know. And, you know, with that... New England, Providence, v international, right? Uh, there's a community here. So you're talking about folks from Stay Silent, right? And they helped you out with trade pop up. Um, they've been on the show. You, we, we've talked about Longston, gang gang, who's also been on the show. Now I've got you on the show, and there's a community here in Providence. Was there any deciding factors that made you want to stay here? Because as you were saying before there is influences from new york and these fact like what made you want to stay here versus go to like a new york or an la or like a, a fashion epicenter maybe not so much now because now everything's more global and more connected because of the you know the web the the internet but what made you want to stay here i don't know i think there's a few different factors um there's something prideful about being able to service the the like you know i don't think i think virgil says something like like the the satisfying the 17 year old version of you where like you know growing up in providence there wasn't anything like this to kind of come to and 
I guess, satiate yourself in terms of just even viewing product like this. You know what I mean? So you'd always have, I, well, me, I'd have to drive up to Boston or go to New I was gonna York. Say, or even or, go to a Boston versus a province. You know what I mean? So I think having something like this that is significant for the kid who's into this type of stuff is important to me. Um, and, I mean, I don't know, man. There's something special about this place. Whereas, like, as much as I love New York and, and Boston is cool as fuck, too, there's something that is different about this place than any other place that I've been to realistically. So I, I just didn't, it didn't make sense for me to not do this here and then do it somewhere else. You know what I mean? With that being said, how important is it for you and your business now and even the success that you've enjoyed with this business, creating, maintaining, and keeping relationships? So I think that's something that sometimes maybe gets lost on on folks who just do business online. Like there's a way to keep relationships online, and I get that. Yeah. But it's different when it when like you see people out and about when you when you see others and you can like actually interact with them. So how important has has that been for you, especially with Providence being such a close knit community? Yeah, it's extremely extremely important, man. It's and it gets harder honestly as time goes on because you meet more and more people that you know you feel are of. You know, you, you definitely want to have, like, a relationship with them, and they're, like, significant people. And, you know, there's just only so much time in the day, and there's only, you know. You so, got to run this business as well. Exactly. So it's like you have a—it's it's hard determining what to do or how to kind of go about that and navigate those relationships sometimes because it's like, you know, you might, you might, you know— go in one direction that you feel like is the right direction or something like that. And then kind of like, um, I don't want to say ignore people or whatever, but you know, you have your priorities and things like that. Like and you're not intentionally trying to ignore people, yeah. but it's just like, Hey, you only got so many hours. Yeah. It sucks, man. It's, uh, it's one of the things that I'm still learning to kind of like manage is like my time and, and, and creating these meaningful relationships with like the particularly like the creative people around me and stuff like that, because I feel like there's like a thing that's happening, particularly like right now in, in Providence and Rhode Island with the creatives that it's like at the cusp of, of, of like something great. The energy feels different. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, I need to kind of like be a part of this in a meaningful way. And I feel like I can be, but managing that with the, owning a business and being like a dad and stuff like that is trouble. It's tough. That goes right into my next question. How do you balance the business life and running this while having a family? I mean, you just have to do it. I don't know. You just, you I, just figure it out. I don't, I don't, I can't say that I'm doing a great job in all honesty. So I can't sit here and give you like, yeah, you should, this is the way that you No, I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing what I can more or less, but I, I feel like, I'm definitely prioritizing time with my kids and, and doing all the things I'm supposed to be doing as a dad, hopefully. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and you know, I, I feel like this is part of it as well, though, like being able to show them that you can do what you love for a living. You know what I mean? You don't have to take the the predetermined, you know, you should be this or you should be that, uh, that, you know, typically, you know, our parents might want us to go ahead and do. I Because I've taken an unconventional route myself, there's no way that I can kind of push them in that direction if they don't want to do that. So giving them the the visual and the opportunity to be like, hey, you know, if you love doing something that's not necessarily the norm, you can still find a way to to do that and and hopefully like monetize it. You know what I mean? 
So you have that attitude for your kids. Did your parents have that attitude for you of no. like, oh, he's like he's making money, like hey, like like it's good? Or, no, or I mean because. For a long time, it wasn't that. You know, for a long time, it was just the odd obsession with clothing and shoes and the wild, expensive kind of like spending habits and stuff without the, you know, making it a business part. Because that's, you know, the the foundation that led me to being able to do this more or less is the, was the wild, passionate hours on the internet looking at, you know, product that only released in Japan, kind of like, you know, dreaming about these certain things. It was like that type of stuff that led me to be here. And, you know, my parents were, you know, all immigrant, my parents are immigrants and stuff, and all immigrant parents kind of like hope for like the most highest possible professional thing for their kids to do, whether it's like a doctor or a lawyer and, you know, something along those lines. So for a long time, they were kind of confused, but as they saw, it developing they just kind of were like well that's good that you found something that you can that you like and can make money doing or that you found a way to make money doing this crazy shit with the shoes that you love because it was always like still to this day my dad's trying to like convince me to sell like my own shit it's like all oh, the stuff that you got man you got too much too many shoes and too many shirts you and take take some of these shoes that you have over here and sell them bring them to the store you know clean them up and stuff. i'm like well like i don't i don't need to do that i have yeah. a variety of brand new shoes that Customers, goodbye. I don't need to sell them like my own stuff, Dad, but thanks for the suggestion. So we're getting in the final stretch here. And one question I wanted to ask is, and especially now that you were saying you always wanted to design clothes, um, you you did actually release a piece. I have one, yep. and it's amazing. The Thank Prospect you. Park shirt. Yeah. And first off, just taking a locally significant, because for somebody on the outside, it's just like, oh, it's this is like really nice looking shirt. Mm. But for us here in Providence, in Rhode Island, like Prospect Park does mean something. Right. Um, and it's a culturally significant park for us. What made you choose Prospect Park? And was, what was that experience like where you actually did get to achieve the dream of like, I designed this piece and released it? Like, how crazy was that for you to actually go from like ideation? Um, and not just like, Hey, I want to print a graphic on a T, which I've done. And like, even that in of itself is, is like crazy. Like yeah. I had this idea now it's there, but like, this is like more of like a couture type of thing where it's like, it's a short sleeve button up. It's not just let's throw it. Nothing wrong with putting a graphic on a T. Huh. I'm just saying it's more complicated than sure. that. Um, yeah. Can you walk through that process of like, when did you have the idea and like, you know, um, maybe give the short version of like idea all the way to it's in the store and like I, me hosting the show, Jason like bought one. Nice. Um, so <clears throat> like I said, I've always wanted to make clothes and I felt like using the things around me as like inspiration made the most sense. And, you know, finding uh, a kind of like a common place between what's important to me and maybe uh, people who are around me or potential customers, right? So one of the things that was always captivating for me growing up in Providence was the view from Prospect Park. And then... Oh, the view is crazy. Exactly. So that's what people would call it. Like there's people who don't even know that it's called Prospect Park. There's people that they just know that it's called the view. Or, or they know the statue. Exactly. So for me, it was like, <clears throat> I've, I've gone there for years you know, for a variety of different reasons. You know, in high school, you might have bunk class and you go and you smoke a joint with your friends or something, you know what I mean? Or maybe a few years later, you, you go with like a, a girl that you want to spend some like interesting time with watching the sunset or whatever. And it it made sense to me because there were so many people that had similar experiences. Never mind, it's kind of like relevance with it being like 
Roger Williams and the statue and the view of the city itself. Um, so I felt like having uh, an image of a place that meant a lot to people was important to to use as kind of like the the backdrop for the for the shirt, as well as making a shirt that was even if it was a blank shirt with nothing on it was of a certain quality. A, a certain quality. So you know, I did the research and we used a material called Lyocell, which is like a silk alternative that's like moisture wicking as well, so it keeps you kind of cool and stuff. Oh, I've, I've worn it to the beach. Yeah, so I'm saying it's so a great it's like, shirt. It's one of those things where it was like, you know, we did the research in terms of just making like a proper garment as well as making it beautiful. We had like, I had an artist make a watercolor painting of basically a few pictures of, I took of of uh, Prospect Park and had them make like a a watercolor painting out of it. Yeah, I don't even know what that is. I think it's like the, the, Zamb- oh, like the Zamboni thing that kind of- The vacuum like Zam- yeah, the vacuum yeah. Zamboni? Yeah, that it- one. Hey, again, we're on location, people. Like, yeah. this is, uh, this is not- hours. Yeah, this is not- um, This is this is the good and bad of uh, being able to travel, but at least people know, like, I edit it to make it sound good, but it's not edited to the point where it's like, oh, they probably cut so much out. Right, no, no. We're here. <laughs> Damn, what are we talking about? Sorry. Um, just going through the process of the shirt. Oh, yeah. So, um, and like I said, it was one of those things where- when uh, talking to people about the, you know, the picture of the Prospect Park, the kind of like enjoyment that they'd get from realizing that that's what it was, you know, I have like, um, selling a feeling, yeah, selling nostalgia. And that's, and that's what it is, man. Like, so for instance, right. I don't know if you're familiar with David Duke. He, um, he played for PC for a little while and now he plays for the, the Brooklyn Nets. Yeah. Didn't he do a, a recently like a, um, like a, like a basketball event or yes. a festival or something yes. like that. I don't know what the exact name of it was, yeah. but I know he he did an event yeah. here and, it, something and like people showed up. Yep, yep, yep. It was awesome. I went there actually with the kids and stuff like that. I got to watch a bunch of like uh, up and coming like uh, basketball players from the area play against each other. It was really cool. But um, so he hit me up and he came in because he wanted to grab a shirt and luckily I had one that fit him. And when he came in, he asked me, he's like, yo, like what made you do Prospect Park? And I gave him the same reason that I gave you. And he goes, you know, the first like like uh, date or place that I went with my girlfriend was Prospect Park, and I'm like, yo, see, that's the nostalgia. Exactly why I chose that place, you know, because it means so much, so many different things to different people, you know. So just using like the things that evoke feelings, I feel like as like a template for some of the product that I'm going to be making is uh, important moving forward. So, one thing I've noticed about you in particular which i think is different than other people in this in this in industry that you're in in this realm not even just locally just in general right like people like a bobby hundreds become a personality Mm. on their own um people like a jeff stable become a personality people like even the entire staff of round two because of youtube have become like their own personalities and i've noticed with you what i think is refreshing the reason why I know you as a personality is because I come in the store and I like certain things and I can get esoteric with you and talk about certain things. Right. I also obviously don't know when to keep my fucking mouth shut. Hence why I have this goddamn show because I can't shut my mouth. Well, it helps. Um, yeah, it helps. Um, at least in this instance, you know, um, there may be some people who have uh, talked to me they think I'm insufferable. So, you, you know. It'll be okay. Yeah, exactly. Either either way, do however you see Go it. Go buy an anti-social social club too. Exactly. You'll be fine. But you have like the store has an instagram and everything but that is the presence and the brand like stands on its own whereas other businesses the brand and the person are really intertwined and i think however you want to operate there's pros and cons to both was that a conscious decision 
to like not become the personality. Like I think people know he's a personality. If they've seen you at events and seen you around. Or like I've seen you at stay silent events and things like that. But like, unless they're within that local community, like if they just know the thing from online, it's not like Sudi, the guy online, like that we know. It's not like the dude from um, oh, what the hell is the name of the store in in Las Vegas? Um, uh, unified. Uh, I mean, uh, was it Urban Necessities? Urban Necessities, where like that dude who runs that store is now his own personality. Right, right. right. You know what it's I mean? Easy, um, where? Yeah, cool. exactly. Like uh. And that's that's cool, but like, was that a conscious decision that you didn't want to go that way? You just like, I just want the store to be a thing, or was that was that just like kind of a coincidental thing? I think it was just more important for the store to be defined, you know, than it was for me to be so much the definition of the store. I guess you could say it was more about the, you know, the pieces, the 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 kind of like aesthetic, the expression, than it was so much about me. I mean, there have been times there was like a year that I was posting like fit pics and stuff like that, but it was really more to kind of show the perspective of the person who does the curation than it was to necessarily highlight me myself. You know what I mean? So it wasn't, I don't know. I feel like I, eventually I'll do something where I'm kind of like highlighting, I guess, like my perspective and stuff like that besides the clothing, whether it be like video content or something like that. But the store itself should live as its own like entity. You know, and then I can kind of be my own entity, I guess, separately from the store. What do you see, you know, as the future for, you know, the industry and for this thing that you started that is Cure Collection? Because I know you're making pieces in the future, but, you know, maybe what do you see for the immediate future of this and also maybe like the five-year plan down the road? Well, I mean, it's. I think it's interesting. the The market changes all the time, so things that were popular when I first started might not be as popular anymore. So you have to kind of like move on. So I feel like you know, as time moves on, we will morph like our selection of things to kind of fit the um, you know, what's kind of like significant of the time. Like for instance, like uh, a thing that's huge right now is essentials. You know, if you're got essential stuff, where I'm pretty sure like a version of it was around when I started this, but no one cared as much you know so you know you have certain situations uh like a uh, thing that was relevant at the time guest stripey shirts you know what i mean those were super popular when i started uh in the arcade no one really cares about them anymore shout out to my boy cody um but you know it's just kind of like i guess moving with where the market kind of is it's particularly here in rhode island but also bringing in new and interesting product to kind of like show the customer like hey this is on the horizon of things that are interesting or even just putting them onto things that i think are cool that might not be necessarily on the horizon i can maybe help them become that you know what i mean it's almost like being a good dj where it's like you gotta play the stuff that people know so they can party but then like you should also be int introducing them to like new stuff that they haven't heard yet that they were like but you gotta like slip it in, in a way that like it all makes sense there you go i'm a instead of a disc jockey i'm a t-shirt jockey i guess you're, you're a cultural jockey yeah, something like that you know yeah i mean it works man at the end of the day um, you know, and then the five-year situation, I feel like we'll have more in-house product, you know, maybe a few more locations, um, just something, something that's more recognized outside of the area. I feel like, you know, whatever presence that might be, whether it be with the, with the clothing stuff or with locations that are in the immediate area, that's probably where we're going to end up at. But, um, you know, I just take it as it comes, man. That's like kind of been like the growth pattern, um, with what we've been doing. As time goes on and we, we've needed to modify what it is that we've doing, we've kind of done it at the times that it made the most sense, I guess you could say. 
what is something or maybe something like multiple things that you have to deal with in this industry, in this business that people don't know, like the customer or the general public doesn't know about that you maybe you wish they did know about? I'm sorry, say that one more time. Are there, is there a certain thing or things that you have to deal with, like difficulties, like this vacuum machine that just keeps going by? There's one spot, my guy. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's actually a robot and it's just, it's, it's self-aware and being annoying. Um, what are like maybe things or multiple things that you deal with in terms of running this business that people don't know that you wish they knew? Yo, one more time. I just had this weird, like, brain yeah. fart thing yeah. about AI because right. when you brought that yeah. up, I was like, yo, what if that's, like, the genesis of AI? Like, they just troll us and <laughs> they, shit. They, they start trolling and it turns, yo, turns into a Terminator. That would be crazy. Because even more self-aware. Yeah. Like, it starts innocently with trolling and then or it's just, like... troll us to death? That would be wild. Oh, my yo. God. That's, that's a... I, I think we need to copyright that for, like, a funny... Like, a comedic right? sci-fi movie set think, in a mall. I think it might work. Yeah. I think it might work. There, oh, was, a, there was a movie in a mall where the, where things became self where The security robots became self-aware in the 80s and, like, killed everybody. But it's like I a schlock movie. Yeah. It's like a schlock. But we should do, like, a funnier trolley version yeah, of that. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're remaking all sorts of shit, so why and not? It's still back. It's coming... It's, it is trolling us. I'm Holy just, shit. I'm so confused as to what it's it could be. Us. There's not even that much carpet over here. Um... Okay, the question, I'm sorry. What, no, what, what are things that you have to deal with running this business that the general public doesn't know that you maybe you wish they knew about? Just the weird questions you get from people sometimes, you know? Like this one? <laughs> no, no. Like, I mean, you know, things that you would, you would think that the general public would know. It's, it's tough because, you know, this store, while we have like an interesting curation selection, I'm still in the mall. So you get like your general mall customer that they've only experienced like zoomies and yeah, and Foot Locker and stuff like that. So when they walk in and they see, you know, a vintage Whitney Houston t-shirt or something and it's $200, they have to kind of like, they're so confused. Yeah. You know what I mean? So they, they just ask like a variety of questions like, yo, why is this t-shirt? And then you have to go through the, you know. Yeah. There's a lot of explaining basically that goes that goes along with this business when you're dealing with like your kind of conventional customer that might not be as like informed. I'm guessing you also have to maybe deal with like explaining when you know like yeah you have to source inventory but sometimes like I've brought in pieces before right. and some you've taken and some you're like hey man like I appreciate you bringing it in but like just with the with trends and everything right yeah. now it's worth something but it's not going to move here like right. you ever get in those like kind of things where it's like I got to explain this yeah. again like hey your Jordans that you love that you may think are great or yeah they're on stock X for this average price but I'm not stock X mm. and like I have other things or to not do. just that like markets are different you know something yeah. that might seem like an interesting item online to the entire population of the world might not be as interesting to the general customer here in Rhode Island you know? gotcha like a good example of that for instance like uh, our Kobe's right Kobe's are like a generally like beloved shoes, particularly I think it's like the the six and the seven models. Those are like the ones that are like highly coveted for the most part. And they they have like a high um retail, I mean resale value for the most part. People do not buy them shits over here. So it's mostly I guess like a West Coast thing or something like that. It's just not something that people care to spend that type of money on here, typically, you know? So there are certain things that translate well online that don't translate well here and vice versa. There's certain things that would be considered uh, what people call bricks or just like shoes that sit, um, you know, online or whatever that sell really well in, in this particular market. So, you know, it's it's just, it's it's hard to kind of like explain to people because they're not looking at it from my perspective. So I have to kind of like give them insight into why 
I have to make certain decisions. Like, you know, why am I not buying this $3,000 shoe? It's like, you should have this shoe here, but they don't understand that, you know, I, the way that I explain it to people is basically like past $300, every $100 more, there's a smaller and smaller percentage of people who are willing to spend that much money. And also the shoes. longer you sit on it too. Yeah. I mean, there's certain things that they, obviously they raise in value over time just because there's less of those items than demand raises for whatever reason, a celebrity wears it, et cetera, et cetera. But for the most part, these things, they end up becoming like museum pieces because, you know, nobody wants to pay $3,000 for right. the off-white, whatever, whatever. You know what I mean? What advice, you know, you were saying um, the virtual outlook quote of like doing stuff for your 17-year-old self. Right. What advice would you give to 17-year-old you or a young 17-year-old that's that maybe is coming to the store and it's like, I want to do this someday. What advice would you give? Start now. Or just like start going in that direction. You know, you don't necessarily have to start like a store or, you know, you can just start with the knowledge. That's how I started. I didn't have access to... I didn't have the money to to go and buy the product a lot of times, so I, I absorbed the energy the way that I could, which was the knowledge of the product. You know what I mean? So start with that. Be, you know, an encyclopedia of the shit that you love. And then that way, when you are in the position to make the decision about buying the stuff or selling the stuff, you have all the information that you need in order to make the right decisions. You know I mean? There's also less gatekeeping now from a technological oh, perspective sure, and sure, from like a sure. person perspective. Like yeah. there's just access to information now and access yeah. to things where we you didn't have that before. Also, it's important to kind of like define your perspective, I feel like, you know, because there's so gotcha. many people who are doing similar things or who like, you know, are the next wave of people doing these types of things. And if there's no differentiating factor between you and the other 100 people that are coming in doing the same thing as you at the same time. It's like, why am I going to buy from you? Exactly. Or why am I going to connect with you? Exactly. It's a thing that I say basically like, you know, your perspective is important. That's number one because it's it's a a definitive particular thing that you can kind of present to people. And even if it's product that other people have, the way that you present it or like the passion behind your presentation of it is important and then um and what was it? it was perspective and then the other one was well passion man like you just got to be really passionate and because the passion will help you through the days when shit's tough you know what i mean because it's not always sweet you know things don't always go great uh, times aren't always awesome there's going to be dips and stuff like that and there's a lot of people if they're not really passionate about it they just jump out and they do something else because there's other stuff that you can do to make money you know what i mean but you have to be passionate enough to really stick through it if it's not working out. I think you just gave the subtitle of this episode, Passion and Perspective. I think we're going to go with that. There you go. That I think works. we're going to go with that, Passion and Perspective. With that, you know, before before the uh, trolling vacuum cleaner and yeah. the and the door alarm murder us right. uh, in, in, in Death Mall 2022. I like how the alarm was replaced by the vacuum. No, okay. I was... I'm... I'm freaking out right now because I was just about to say, I think they are self-aware because the moment the alarm stopped, the vacuum exactly. came in to annoy us. They're talking to each other. Yeah, it's crazy. If we, if we don't make it out alive and this recording gets out somehow, just which we predicted, if somebody right. finds this recording 20 years from now, yeah, they the can source it back. Yeah they, yeah, they can source it back. 
to this one event. This is the Nexus event where Dude. the machines became self-aware and troll this all. And it started with the trolling. Then they start with the murdering. That's how we get to Terminator. Yeah, imagine. Terminator wasn't a fictional movie. It's a warning from the future. But that's, that's why they have to keep making them because we don't take it seriously. And then the future doesn't change. That's what it is. Man. Anyway, beyond that weird ass conspiracy theory, we're at the end. <laughs> uh, you can. It's it's like hot ones. I stole this idea. I'm I'm. I'm you know, I'm shamelessly, I stole the idea along with other ideas I've stolen for this show. But hey, you know, good. You've adapted copied. them. I've adapted the them. Way. I've there adapted them. Yes, I've remixed them and adapted them. There you go. Uh, you know, the open, the open mic is yours. The floor is yours. Is there anything you want to say or promote or just get off your chest? Um, say whatever you want to, to close it out. Um, I mean, just, you know, follow the, follow your passion, man. That's the the one like really important thing and like you said you know passion and perspective those are really important things and those kind of like help define what it is that i do almost entirely you know it's it's my my look on things and the passion that i have for it so if you take anything from this podcast i guess it's those things you know be passionate and and use your perspective to help define what it is that you're doing and that's it um you know come check us out Providence place small second floor we're across from zara uh next to sephora um dropping more products soon um hit me up if you want one of those prospect park shirts because i might have a few extras coming in with that i think that's a good way to end it sudi thank you so much Yo, jason thank for you for for, around, for, for just being on the show and just adding adding to the to the myth and and lore of the show hopefully one day people will be digging for old episodes and yeah. be like oh like when when th- when that when that shirt becomes a collector's item that yeah. prospect park shirt they can come back to this and be like oh man like they were talking about it way back then yeah, man. but thank you so much for coming on um thank you for doing the show pleasure having you um yeah man until next time everybody keep on creating for show be safe guys and that's it for this episode of the creative capital show thank you for listening and a special thanks goes to this episode's guest sudi belliard the creative capital show is hosted recorded edited mixed and produced by me jason silvia you can listen to the creative capital show over on our website creativecapitalshow.com we're also available on anchor fm itunes spotify Google Podcasts, and all other major podcast hosting platforms. If you like the show, please subscribe. Helps the show out a lot. And be sure to follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, LinkedIn, and YouTube. I hope you enjoyed the show, and until next time, keep on creating.